you want this to be successful in raising global climate ambition, then, then climate clubs are probably going to have to be part of that equation. What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, And today we're going to talk about climate and trade on the road to COP26. Now, as I'm sure you're well aware, in early November, the UN Climate Change Conference COP26 will take place in Glasgow, Scotland. This highly anticipated conference will seek to agree new ambitious commitments to reduce CO2 emissions. Now, in the run-up to COP26, A lot of attention has also been spent on the role of trade in meeting global climate objectives. Phrased the other way around, how the climate agenda impacts on international trade. How, in fact, can the two go together? And among the most eye-catching proposals by far has been the EU's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, CBAM for short. Effectively, this mechanism is an import charge on goods proportionate to the amount of CO2 emitted during the production of that good. Basically, it targets countries that do not have a CO2 emissions trading system like the EU with a commensurate carbon price. The EU has designed CBAM in response to concerns over carbon leakage and an unlevel playing field. We The three of us in this call, I've only seen the draft version so far, but by the time that this podcast is published, the proposal from the European Commission will be out. Now, CBAM raises a lot of questions, and to help address them, I'm thrilled to be joined by two trade experts. On the one hand, Emily Lydgate, Emily is Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory in the UK and Senior Lecturer in Environmental Law at the University of Sussex. She's an expert in international trade law and how it impacts the protection of the environment. And from Germany, I'm joined by Christian Blut. He's a senior expert on trade and economics at the Bertelsmann Stiftung, but by the time that you hear this, he will have transitioned to Germany's Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. I'm really happy we've been able to catch him before he goes into government. And most recently, he's the author of a book entitled Europe's Trade Strategy for the Age of Geoeconomic Globalization. Now, Emily, Christian, great that you can join me. Let's try to unpack this CBAM proposal a little bit. 
And to start off, is you think the CBAM, the EU's CBAM proposal, is it helpful or not to achieve global climate objectives? Perhaps, Emily, you can kick us off first. Sure. Well, seeing as we're talking about a proposal that's going to be possibly completely different by the time people listen to this, maybe we should be taking some bets on, on what that might say. But, um, but no, I mean, you, you raised this question of, you know, well, what's the trade and, and, and climate relationship? And, and you know, are our net zero targets going to sort of imperil the open trading system or are trade measures going to imperil our climate change efforts? And certainly you might see, um, you know, CBAM uh, as, as a proof <laughs> that, um, that, you know, climate change is going to be obstructive to the, to the global trade system because it's a unilateral trade measure. It means a lot of countries are going to have to pay fees um, to export to the EU. But if you look at sort of, you know, parliamentary objectives, for example, EU parliament says that, that actually what they're trying to do with this is raise global climate ambition. So, I mean, how, how does that happen? Um, I, and I think one way is, is, is that it actually exports EU climate ambition. You know, it's, it's making exporters say, pay the same as EU producers. But I think if we're trying to assess sort of how much of a difference that will make, it's tricky. There's a lot of uncertainty. You know, we don't really know, for example, what makes producers up sticks and leave the EU because carbon tax is just too expensive. So, you know, by the same token, you know, there's uncertainty about how much having to pay this extra tax would motivate exporters to, say, invest in cleaner technology. Um, you know, they might export their cleaner stuff to the EU and, and consume dirtier stuff domestically, for example. And Christian, at the Bertelsmann Stiftung, you've just recently published a report on the impact of, uh, of carbon measures. And could you Explain to us a little bit about that analysis and, and, and the conclusions you draw with respect to the EU CBAM proposal. Of course. Well, first, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So this, this study that you've uh, just mentioned, um, which I might quote a couple of times in this podcast, is uh, a study that we did together with the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. And what it does is that it simulates a series of scenarios um, what an increase of a carbon price in Europe or the rest of the world would actually imply, both for emissions and uh, also for um, macroeconomic effects, people's, people's wealth, and so on. So the question you've just asked, I mean, what does CBAM actually do? Is it a good thing for the environment or not? Is actually not so easy to answer because on its own, without anything else, CBAM won't be doing much. It's hardly measurable. But CBAM is a useful tool to prevent leakage. So if you raise the carbon price, of course, there is a temptation for producers to shift production elsewhere where you don't have a carbon price or a carbon price is much lower. And this phenomenon is called leakage. And you can reduce this substantially with the use of a CBAM. And that's important because basically it means that it keeps jobs in Europe a bit protected. And if you talk about the social acceptance of climate action, that'll be very important. And how is this viewed from outside the EU? I mean, particularly the US and the UK. I mean, Emily, could you, could you shed some light on, on what you're hearing from them? What I'm hearing? Well, um, I guess... My impression of where the UK is coming from with this, uh, since I'm in the UK, is 
um, they're, they're pretty concerned about sort of throwing CBAM into the mix right before the COP. Uh, they're holding the COP presidency and they see it as, as a divisive issue. You know, the, 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 there's a risk with this proposal, which is basically, you know, the thing implodes and it impedes progress in uh, climate talks, uh, creates an obstacle, you know, or, you know, at best, maybe just a distraction from, from coming up with some sort of substantive commitments to net zero targets. So I think the UK is in sort of a research phase right now. They, they have a big consultation going on. Um, asking EU industry or UK industries about about leakage, so they're trying to create an evidence base on leakage, um, and and I think the US also is just kind of like, well, let's just wait wait until after the COP and then and then see where we're at. The UK, the US has given a lot of mixed signals on this, right? But actually, you mentioned the EU, and mm-hmm. and and I had the sense that the that the, the perceptions of this were pretty mixed in the EU. Christian, I don't know if if that's the sense you have. Like the the support for this isn't isn't overwhelming from all EU member states. Is that is that your impression? I think that's true. I mean, I I don't really have an an oversight over the positions of each individual member state, but um, I I remember that we um, talked with with people in in um, the German Ministry of Economic Affairs. And they didn't seem overly keen on the CBAM, at least at the time that we spoke. They were much more in favor of a consumption tax that would be levied according to the carbon content of a good. Um, and that would help deal with some, some problems that you have when you have a CDM to avoid double taxation. So, for example, if you have an exporter, does that exporter pay, pay the carbon price? when producing? And if yes, what if that good is exported to another country that has a CBAM or something? Is it then required to pay again uh, a CBAM? Or is it just easier sort of if everything is just taxed at consumption? So to be honest, I'm, I'm a bit agnostic what the right strategy is, um, but I certainly think there is a bit of controversy there. And I would also think in the context of Germany, particularly, there are elections coming up in the end of September. I would not be surprised if the Germans would like to see what kind of government emerges from those elections before really making their position known on on CBAM. But at least from the the Commission's point of view, there is quite a lot of momentum behind this because it obviously also connects with the Green Deal ambitions, but also with trade and industrial policy ambitions to try to protect industries that otherwise would suffer or be hurt because of carbon leakage and and the unleveling of the playing field, so to speak. And the question is, this is for you, Emily, is to what extent is ACBAM a correct tool to deal with the the climate challenge? Let's let's put this back in terms of the question you asked about raising global climate ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether CBAM is kind of a, a good way of doing this. And I think if that's the objective, then that has to be a design imperative somehow. And if if we look at the commission's leaked proposal, it has this very strong sort of unilateral logic to it. So it's kind of like, you know, if other countries want to export to the EU, they have to comply with, with EU uh, requirements. If you want to be exempted from CBAM altogether, you have to um, basically be part of, of the ETS, the emissions trading scheme. So that's a pretty small list. 
one thing that the that the CBAM could do is to inspire countries with relatively high climate ambitions to join together, waive tariffs against each other, and, and apply tariffs to those outside the club. So if that's our landing zone, if that's where we're going to make this CBAM into a sort of constructive, plurilateral proposal, then I think that the entry fee has to be a little bit less restrictive. That's, that's really interesting because I think what you're saying is also that there is a risk of the EU overplaying its hand in terms of the initial proposal and that it sort of scares off those countries that would otherwise be willing or able to join the EU in setting up something like a climate club. Let, let's let's um, look at that in a little bit more detail. I'm sort of circling back to, to Christian's paper. You've also looked at what the value would be of actually setting up a climate club. And, and in, before you answer it, I would imagine that one of the ideas behind CBAM is indeed to be the first mover, but not the only mover on this issue, to kind of be a European avant-garde that then brings other countries alongside to also join its, uh, its proposal. Say we get there, what would be the benefit of having a climate club, Christian? So the climate club is is really the optimal solution, both for the environment, but also for the economy. So what we take as a starting point in the simulation is what happens if the EU on its own increases the carbon price by $50 as an example. And if that is the only thing you do, that reduces EU emissions, but it doesn't really reduce global emissions dramatically. Um, that has part to do with, with leakage, which you can address, but it has more to do uh, with the fact that the EU is actually not a huge producer uh, of carbon emissions worldwide. It's much more effective if you have other big industrial countries in there. So we, we played with the idea of okay, how would the effect of the same price increase be if you have the EU and the US doing this together? And then hypothetically, in another scenario, we also included China in this hypothetical carbon club. And each time you add a country, if when you add the US or when you're China, you get a much, much stronger carbon reduction. And if you actually assume that this carbon club is worldwide and everyone participates, then this price hike of 50 euros reduces emissions by 40%. Mm. And that's quite a long way already. Yeah. But then what Emily said was that perhaps the entry fee for a climate club needs to be somewhat less restrictive or phrased differently, kind of lower than what perhaps the EU might be looking for. What kind of effect would that have? I agree. I mean, um, th this is much more complicated than you can do in an economic study. Also because you have very different political economies underlying in these countries. So my understanding of the US position is that for, for various political reasons, they don't seem to be moving massively in the direction of carbon pricing as the main tool of carbon action. I think their regulation of the energy mix and so on is going to play an important role. So that raises one set of questions around the question, okay, can you actually consider certain climate action 
instruments equivalent to a carbon price? And if you can, how do you do this? Also, I think what we need to recognize is that the the wealth effects are not evenly distributed. So if we have these carbon clubs and we have these price hikes, the wealth reduction or the the negative impact on on wealth growth is going to be much larger in China because Mm. China has a much dirtier um, energy mix uh, than it would be in the EU or in the US. So I guess if you want the Chinese to join a carbon club, you have to make this politically viable and politically interesting. And and it's it's very tempting to talk about China and the EU and the US, of course, as as trade powerhouses and also as perhaps not the EU that much, but at least China definitely as a major emitter of CO two uh, gases. But are we are we not at risk of forgetting sort of how a CBAM or how a number of these measures might impact developing countries, Emily? Well, that's the other big one. I mean, I think there's two there's two big ones. <laughs> the first is how can this, you know, CBAM work for developed countries sort of climate allies? And then the second big one is, you know, how can it effectively reflect the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, which is, you know, at the core of the Paris Agreement, for example. And that's really tricky. You know, if if we look at the current uh, approach, in, the, in this leaked proposal, it's built on the presumption that all exporters should pay the same as EU producers. So that doesn't integrate common but differentiated responsibility. Uh, that's clearly going to raise issues at the COP. You know, but where do you draw the line and how do you sort of structure those exemptions? I mean, even if we limit this just to the category of least developed countries, that there's sort of a, an idea that they won't be affected because they don't really export the goods that are covered by the, by the agreement. But um, you know, according to IEP analysis, Mozambique looks set to be impacted, you know, more strongly than China for aluminium and, and Cameroon more strongly than, than India. So there, there are impacts and, you know, there's there are some ideas on the table for, for addressing those impacts to some extent. So, for example, taking CBAM revenues and using them for climate finance for developing countries or at least, you know, providing some support for technical support for implementing it exempting least developed countries is another um, possibility. But these are the kind of issues, you know, that these are design questions. And and even if it's designed in a way that seems sort of more um, reflecting of, of common but differentiated responsibility, it's still, I would say, unlikely to be welcomed with open arms. Right. And then, but then the follow-up question is, okay, what, how do you ensure that it is received with open arms. I mean, how do we open those arms up, so to speak? Yeah. And this, I mean, this is why, you know, this is really why climate action is is so difficult. I mean, these are, these are issues that have been around a long time. How do we, you know, prevent competitive disadvantage for more climate ambitious countries and taking big actions to transform their economies while at the same time being fair to, to developing countries? You know, th- there's really no no easy answer, but I do, but I do think that there's, well, here here's what I think <laughs> they should do. <laughs> so when it comes to sort of creating criteria for 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 joining a climate club, you know, I think there's a concern that there's kind of a trade off between, on the one hand, being ambitious and on the other hand, being inclusive. 
So the EU is going with ambitious. And, you know, if you want to be exempted totally, you have to, you know, literally have the same formal carbon pricing as the EU through the ETS. But I think there's a middle zone there. There's a sort of a Goldilocks option, which is using this kind of idea of of benchmarking of standards. So, you know, it's a bit like when we have trade agreements and product standards, we think about, you know, equivalence rather than harmonization. So mm-hmm. we say, you know, well, we, you achieve the same level of protection that we do, but you do it in a different way. And then we embed that into some sort of agreement saying, here's, here's how we, we benchmark that our, that our approaches have equivalent ambitions. So I think something like that would, would have to be the landing zone here. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on climate and trade on the road to COP26 with Emily Lidgate and Christian Blut. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break going to continue our conversation on climate and trade on the road to COP26, focusing on the EU's CBAM proposal, together with Emily Lidgate and Christian Blut. It occurs to me that there's also a parallel discussion going on, and now we're getting a little bit more towards the traditional trade space, that how does CBAM mesh with existing FTAs? Or new FTAs. Sort of, we see, we we see that the EU is introducing climate conditionalities as as elements in the FTAs that it is negotiating. But wouldn't trading partners feel that have already signed FTAs with the EU feel that they're now uh, asked to jump through another set of hoops when they thought that they already had a preferential trade agreement with um, with the single market? How, how do you see this CBAM intersecting with with the EU's trade trade policy, um, Christian? Perhaps you first. To be honest, I mean the, the EU has also announced that they have different levels of ambition depending on the development uh, state of their trading partners. I think it is really by, uh, for the group of G20 countries that they are going to insist that they live up to their commitments under the, the Paris agreements. Otherwise, there would be some some sort of trade action. But to be honest, I'm, I'm not quite sure whether this is a huge demand across the line. I mean, we've, we've in the last year seen a couple of countries announce goals for carbon neutrality. That is true for South Korea. That is true for Japan. And it's, it's also true for China. So I think there is a trend there. And with, with many of those countries, it will not be a very tough thing to, to negotiate and add on to the existing FDA that in, incorporates 
carbon emissions or sustainability concerns. There will be some countries where it is, is really tricky and the EU has some leverage that it can use, but it doesn't have this leverage in all cases and with all trading partners. So what I'm trying to get at is, of course, the, the obvious and, and vital question is, how do you get China to cooperate in this regard? And I don't think the EU has much leverage on China, uh, not through coercion, maybe through goodwill, but, but not through coercion. I guess you raised the $64,000 question. Emily, how, how, since you just gave us the answer about how we, how we <laughs> should, should create the Carbon Club, how do we bring the Chinese on board? Well, that's the beauty of the Carbon Club, (laughs) that, you know, it's a double win. Mm -hmm. So I think that conceptualized is that if China doesn't want to join, that's fine. Their exporters will pay. So there's an incentive, an economic incentive for China to join. And if they do want to join, then there's going to be some sort of requirements for that. I mean, all of this is extremely speculative in terms of how these discussions might play out. We still don't know um, if anyone besides the EU is going to introduce carbon border adjustment. But it's it's definitely set up as a unilateral measure. So I think any um, cooperation from from the perspective of EU industry, at least, is an add-on or or bonus rather than a requirement for this to be successful um, in meeting their aims. But as we've has sort of come out in this discussion, it seems, to, I think, to, to both, both me and Christian that, you know, if you, if you want this to be successful in raising global climate ambition, then, then climate clubs are, are probably going to have to be part of that equation. Mm-hmm. A lot of criticism from countries like Russia or from China, but also the hesitation we see on the U.S. side has signaled we might take this to the WTO. We are might be interested in challenging elements of CBAM at the WTO. What is the WTO dimension of this? Also realizing that if we want to get towards a carbon club or a climate club, that requires multilateral action. It seems to me that a unilateral measure like CBAM is in a way second best to trying to sort this out at the WTO. So what role is there for the WTO to either smooth the the surface to allow a carbonate club to emerge based on um, perhaps the EU CBAM initiative. On the other hand, the role of the WTO in simply allowing more stringent climate objectives to be achieved. Emily? (laughs) Darn. No, um, I think um, there's the law of the WTO and the politics of the WTO So from a legal perspective, there's been quite a lot of sort of work done, at least in the academic world, on on thinking through how this can be structured so that it's sort of, it's a relatively narrow path, I think. But there's a certain amount of consensus about how it needs to be designed. I think the commission has been a student of those efforts and is trying scrupulously to, I mean, all all the proposals towards a a WTO-compatible carbon border adjustment mechanism. So this is very much something that they are aware of um, and sensitive to. But 
it's a very tricky thing to do because um, because there are you know no matter how you design it it's it's going to discriminate against some group of people either it will you know or group of countries either it will discriminate by by not distinguishing countries based on their climate efforts or it will discriminate by distinguishing them and the and the the implementation of it is so complex that it seems likely to me that there that there might be sort of grounds for 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 claims of uneven treatment i mean this is all you know we see how it plays out when we see the final regulation and the sort of design details and implementation details. But even if the, even if the, the commission kind of bends over backwards to try to, to make this as WTO uh, sort of bulletproof as possible, I think it's still um, likely that countries will complain because they don't like the precedent and they want to just sort of throw some shade on it. So to me, it seems like WTO challenge is, is very, very likely here. And of course, in the climate we have with the with the dispute settlement mechanism being somewhat um, dysfunctional, this could be something that 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 sort of leads to tariff wars, um, trade conflict, um, without a sort of a neat resolution from from the WTO High Court to sort us all out. That's a that's a cheerful um, <laughs> thought. Um, that, I'm sure that's not the intention behind uh, behind CBAM to trigger a trade war. But the 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 point, of course, is correct that you make that given the absence of a functioning international multilateral trade body, at least functional to the extent that you would like it to function, you see countries, big trading blocks, throwing their weight around in a unilateral way, and perhaps this is also the EU's sort of unilateral moment and trying to get the discussion moving forward on really delivering on ambitious climate uh, and CO2 reduction uh, mechanisms. Is that is that a fair way to describe it, Christian? I'm not quite sure if I like the description of Europe's unilateral moment. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't really assess to, to what extent the CBAM is WTO law compatible or not. One lawyer I ask says yes, and the other says no. But one thing we can definitely say, which is that the EU has really tried or paid lip service to making this WTO compatible. They don't want this to, to be seen counteracting their efforts to shore up the multilateral trading system. And I think that's, that's right and that's, that's absolutely important because, I mean, the WTO is in bad crisis as it is for many reasons. And I think if the perception of the WTO came to be that this is an institution that somehow makes climate action more difficult that would further undermine trust in this organization. So I think it's it's very important that the WTO members get together and actually don't leave this only to the lawyers, but talk about the frameworks under which climate action can take place, how you deal with the competitive issues that are involved. And that goes far beyond CBAM. That involves subsidies for the green transition, phasing out subsidies for fossil fuels, um, you could imagine starting again talks on the environmental goods agreement in order to to just make trade in goods that make the world greener easier. So there are lots of things that you could talk about. And I think it's absolutely vital that the WTO gets a bit of green paint. How should we realistically assess the WTO's role here? If I may, I mean, 
I think the WTO definitely has a role to play, but I don't think this should rest on the WTO's shoulders alone. So there, there are definitely other institutions that can play a, a role. I mean, we've, we've started this off uh, with the discussions about COP. Um, that's, of course, an important forum. The WTO can do certain things, but it tends to move very slowly because the idea, of course, is that whatever discussions take place end up in some sort of legally binding arrangement. So before you get to that, you other institutions like the OECD, for example, can also play a role. Something that I have at the back of my head is that uh, in the in the 80s, when you had debates about agricultural subsidies and the effects on trade, the OECD was extremely helpful in actually highlighting how distortive um, certain subsidies actually were and what sort of the producer subsidy equivalent would be. And this transparency was extremely helpful when there were later discussions about actually legal disciplines. So such an exercise, sort of see what countries are doing in terms of climate uh, action, which instruments they are using, what the effect is on emissions, but also what the effect is on on, uh, international competition, is something that I think particularly the OECD would be very well placed to do. And when we have this data and transparency, which we are currently lacking, at least in this comprehensive form, that could then make negotiations on some sort of agreement or framework um, much easier and much more fruitful. Final question, unless, uh, Emily, you want to chip in on this. Well, I was just going to say on the OECD, they've done a lot of interesting work on fossil fuel subsidies categorization as well. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see just furthering what, what, what you were, the observation you were making, you know, we have this FTA negotiation, the ACTS agreement with New Zealand, Norway, and and, and some others, where they, they agree to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. So it will be interesting to see how they define fossil fuel subsidies, whether they drop from the OECD definition or allow countries to use their own definition. So it's just another example of how, you know, these kind of discussions can evolve from, um, you know, from OECD into sort of legal or, or quasi-legal frameworks or not. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So final question, this is highly speculative, of course, but from the publication of the EU CBAM proposal, for the next couple of months, we're going to be talking a lot about this. This is going to be a hot topic in discussions in Brussels, but also in the run-up to COP26 in many capitals around the world. We've touched upon some of the downsides, we've explored the potential. Looking into your crystal ball, in terms of making bets, are we going to see CBAM deliver or not? What do you think, Emily? I want to know what you think, because you seem to be a skeptic. <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm just, I, I'm just very curious how this proposal is going to, going to be received. Because in all honesty, I think that what has been lacking so far is that um, CBAM is, is hotly debated inside the Brussels bubble. Uh, 
So it's the Commission and the and the European Parliament that are really the driving force behind the debate now. We've explored a little bit about that even in, in EU member states, there are still fence sitters and some major countries are still not entirely convinced that this is it. Well, the rest of the world is looking at this as well. And I see CBAM as a as a way to move, get the rest of the world into into gear. But to do that, the EU must pay attention to bringing other countries alongside. If we want to meet global climate objectives, CBAM is, is not going to do it in and of itself. It needs to be part of a broader multilateral action. So I'm not skeptic to the degree that I don't think it's, it's going to happen. I think to make it happen, we need to do a lot more a lot more work, particularly in also getting like-minded countries on board. Now, that's not an answer to the question I asked you, which was, what do you think? Are we going to have a CBAM next year or not? Next year, to be honest, I would be skeptical whether we see it already. But eventually, I think we will see it. I think CBAM or, or some similar equivalent measure is, is definitely gaining traction. And I, I hope that the EU's commission become, become a bit less narrow in their definition of, of climate action and the instruments they consider. And they, they broaden up a bit without, without diluting it, of course. I think that would actually help precisely with what you have described to really make this the keystone of uh, more international, more plurilateral, multilateral effort. And, and that is what we ultimately require. So I think CBAM, yes, but I guess it'll take a lot of discussion inside the EU and outside the EU to find its final shape. Emily? So, I, I mean, I, if you look at what's on the table, it's a fairly, in some sense, modest proposal because the, the, the transition period is fairly long. So I think it's 2029 before it fully kicks in. It's only on a few sectors. So, I mean, in a way, you, you could say it's, it's like a bull in a china shop just crashing through everything. But in another way, it's, it's a very limited proposal for, for CBAM, almost too slow considering you know the speed of, of at which other types of, of climate climate action are taking but I think CBM is really really tricky I mean it's from a regulatory perspective I I like to say it's it's a it creates a sort of trilemma between having it be environmentally ambitious having it be technically feasible and having it be sort of express equity to developing countries and, and with respect to WTO principles. So I think there's always going to be trade-offs, design trade-offs between those goals. The proposal we have on the table, even though it's really limited sectorally, is fantastically technically complex. And so it, it's, not, it's not an easy sell. And it's not a full solution. But I think it can be one tool on the table. Great. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. But we may have to record a separate or a follow-on podcast if the actual proposal turns out to be completely different than anything we've discussed <laughs> over the past 30 minutes. Uh, and to be, all, to be honest, I think that uh, that CBAM in, 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 and the whole discussion about how climate and, and trade go together is going to stay with us for quite some time. 
So I'm pretty sure we're going to continue this uh, this exchange of uh, of thoughts. Uh, in any case, Emily Christian, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website www.aig.co.uk/gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.